Hold on to your butts. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 80 of the Civil War Breakfast Club <laughs> podcast. Joined by my co-host, Mary, a woman who was always appa mad at me for something. I am merely a surrendered dish rag <laughs> named Darren. Hey, Mary, how are you? <laughs> well, I just found out that uh, the Indians lost their season opener. Um, It's the Guardians. <laughs> Gosh. Anyway, I'm good. Happy to be recording. How are you? Oh, God. awesome. 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 My <laughs> team is undefeated. Undefeated. We're 0-0. Oh oh. My team is like, like I say, I can make so many references to the Civil War and the way the Indians play. For instance, the Great Halt describes the 2016 World Series. And tonight's game, when they put the bullpen in, just describes Shiloh Day 2 for the Confederates. So oh, we're okay. off you to a hundred- really awesome start. You've got 161 more losses to go. So don't you worry about it. Don't you worry Fucker. about it. So what else is going on besides? we got some fun stuff to talk about tonight, Mayor. Well, speaking of losses, <laughs> we're getting into our first episode oh, of Oh my goodness Matt. gracious, look at that. <laughs> Matt in the industry is called a segue. Tonight we are going to talk about the Appomattox campaign, the end of the line for the Army of Northern Virginia, and realistically the beginning of the end of the Confederacy as a whole. But before we talk about the shenanigans of the night, I'm going to be a gracious host and not forget. And I'm going to ask you, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking uh, Ghost Orchid by Bellwoods Brewery out of Toronto, which is one of their new IPAs. And it is amazing. And it has, I don't know, the name has nothing to do with the episode, but it's got really cool can art on it. It's a really great IPA. But my mug has something to do with tonight's episode. I'm drinking it out of my General Mead mug because he is part of this Appomattox campaign and what will eventually be the surrender. And he, I don't know, I really feel that Mead gets overshadowed in all of this. It's a lot of Grant. It's a lot of Sheridan. It's a lot of Lee. It's it's all of that. Well, but... we all know, Mary, that Mead was fired when Grant took over. I heard that on a podcast somewhere. Fuck. I don't want to get you going about that. It's Jesus, that that's what I had to do my anyway. PSA on Facebook about. Right. Mead was not fired. And what uh, are you drinking? Well, I never thought you'd ask. I'm drinking, it is called Big Bang IPA. There <laughs> I, I, you go. I call it Big Bang because, well, I, I don't know. I don't know why. That's what I had. And I'm drinking it out of my Sherman Die Mad Mug because Sherman's part of this whole thing, sort of. He's, he he's, you know, we're not going to talk a lot about Uncle Blingy tonight, but he's certainly a part of it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn back time a little bit. If I could turn back time. Don't ever do that again. And what <laughs> we're going to do is we're going to go back to Petersburg. And we're going to kind of start from there. We're going to work our way forward. Now, I don't know if you know this, Mary, but we're going to do a two-parter tonight. We're going to take this as far as we can at Maddox, and then we're going to see what happens. And we're going to do one of those cliffhangery things and see what happens with it. And then we'll finish this up next time. So we're going to kind of go back and set the whole app Maddox campaign up, okay? On April 2nd, real quick, just to summarize, April 2nd, 1865, the Union is going to break the Confederate line in Petersburg, which will sign that death warrant uh, for this, the rebel capital of Richmond, right? Petersburg was the rail supply hub for Richmond, where five railroads all connected. And really what it did is it fed, the, it fed supplies to the capital, right? The Rebs knew if Petersburg fell, they could not possibly hold Richmond. They were basically screwed. So to fend Petersburg, the Rebs set up that original, that Dimmock line, right? Yep. Back in, 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 by the summer of 1864, those trenches they built were down to like 2,000, 2,500 guys. So the people, you know, it was limited. Grant is doing his Overland campaign, right? And after the Battle of Cold Harbor, U.S. Grant, um, he's going to order General William Baldy Smith, a good New Englander, Mary, from St. Albans, Vermont, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. 
I did. Okay, I'm pretty sure you didn't. But he ordered him to seize uh, seize Petersburg, right? Once Smith got to Petersburg, he sees those trenches. Mm-hmm. Now, he doesn't know there's only 2,500 guys. He yeah. just sees the trenches. And he's remembering that Cold Harbor bloodbath that he just experienced. And he got a little scared is what happened <laughs> to him, okay? <laughs> so he delayed that attack just long enough for Lee, Robert E. Lee, to reinforce the trenches. And really that what that did is that kicked off that nine-month siege yeah. of Petersburg, right? And that's kind of what it was. Now, during the siege, Grant tried to cut the railroad lines. Like I mentioned, there was five of them. He attacked the Weldon Railroad on June 21st, 1864, and he used that Sixth Corps, mm-hmm. which was his go-to corps this time of the war. For I know, the Sixth Corps is everywhere. It was, you know, break glass, you know, get the Sixth Corps <laughs> in case of emergency. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it was kind of a disaster. It resulted in about 2,000 prisoners of war for the Union. They all got sent to Andersonville in Georgia. And that leads to that July 30th, 1864, Grant okays that infamous crater situation. Speaking of the Big Bang, Mary, okay, which was the brainchild of Ambrose Burnside, another solid that led to like not one of your prouder guys though hey nothing wrong with him he's a good guy you know Sox fans he's a good guy but it led to those 4,000 casualties for the union mostly those USCT guys right yeah now this is going back and forth eventually Lee as you know Mary Lee is very aggressive he's very offensive he's been he's been sitting around doing nothing just defending. And so he wants to be a little offensive here himself. So what he's going to go ahead and he's going to attack Fort Stedman on March 25th, 1865, using John John B. Gordon, which is going to initially show some success, but then it's going to kind of peter out. It began in the early morning and Trudeau in his book, The Last Citadels, describes it as one of the most methodical attacks of the Civil War. Like Gordon goes into this like I don't know what he's he's on, but he's like, yeah, I can take this. And he's like, I think he was talking it up to Lee and he said, the disintegration of the whole left wing of the federal army, or at least the dealing of such a staggering blow upon it would disable it temporarily, enabling us to withdraw from Petersburg in safety to join Johnson in North Carolina. And as we're going to talk about, this is this is the big thing. We got to get to Johnston, right? The fort is captured, but Union General Park, who is the commander there, he's like, fuck this. You're not taking my fort. And he counterattacks and he recaptures it and the batteries. Um, the Confederates end up with 4,000 casualties, including 1,000 captured, which at this point in the war, they don't need to be losing any more men. And they are. And this is one of the reasons why Stedman, it's not, you know, one of the, it's not the most important um battle in the Appomattox campaign but it is one of these ones that it's like we gained nothing from this um like one soldier wrote home to his wife and said I can't give you the particulars but we have gained nothing and another described it as only a meteor's flash that illuminates for a moment and leaves the night darker than before so in other words well shit we're no better off um you know even Gordon was like well we're fucked um you know, then it just Stedman does absolutely nothing for them. No, Stedman is going to prove to be the last offensive attack for Lee at, at yeah. any point with this. But really, it was it was similar to Ambrose Wright at Gettysburg. They break through, but they just don't have the guys to hold it. No. They get pushed back. Ends up with forty five or so hundred casualties. And to your point. You ain't got many guys. You can't go to the soldier factory and get more soldiers anymore. No, and this is not right? like, you know, and, and not not only if you have a battle, are you going to lose men? But you have to remember at this time um, to that they are losing men to desertions. Desertions are, I think, very, very high at this point in the Army in Northern Virginia. The other thing, too, is the men don't have the fight in them. I mean, 
they're not living on very good rations. When you look to the Union oh. Army, which is having fresh bread delivered every day because they have those bakeries set up thanks to Hooker when he made all those changes to the Army of the Potomac. Oh. They have that. They're able to feed their men where, you know, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, they don't have that. And they are like, I mean, as much as you can, as much as the spirit is willing, sometimes you just physically can't. And I think that's what this is also showing too. Well, it's tough when you have the Unions getting Krispy Kreme delivered every single day to the battle lines, you know, and the, and the Confederates are just, are just starving. They're getting, they talk Tim, Horton, a lot about they're getting Tim Hortons donuts. They're getting days old Tim Hortons donuts yeah. where they're oh. getting good ones. <laughs> but but Lee, Lee's men, you know, Lee's men were breaking and Grant certainly knew it. So yeah. late in the night of April 1st and uh, going into early April 2nd, 1865, 14,000 guys from that, and, and around that six core are going to find themselves lying on their stomachs waiting to attack. Now, the, we were talking before, the Confederates, they're, they're sick of this crap. The Union is too. 10 o'clock at night on 4-1-1865, the Union artillery is going to open up and blast away for two full hours yep. with more guns than they use at Gettysburg. That's how many guns were being used in this, this assault. Now, the infantry, they knew this war was almost done. And they're thinking, shit, do I want to get killed at the very end? No. So when they get the order to move, they're like, uh, you know, they're like, they're like yeah. trying to get you to move. So the soldiers had to use Fucker. swords and the officers whack him in the butt oh to God. get him going. To, that, that's true. And to get these guys moving. God, they didn't wasn't that go. Barlow's move when he wanted to get his men moving? When he was in the level of Corey? Barlow, he used to whack his soldiers back. Of, like... So anyway, as I was saying, Mary, <laughs> the rebel line was, was, was finally broken after a nine-month siege and the first guy to cross it is a guy from Vermont named Charles Gould. Mm -hmm. He's the captain of Company H of the 5th Vermont. Now, these 15,000 Union men are going to go through a field, which is known today as Pamplin Park, right? Yep. And Gould's going to reach that rebel earthworks. He's going to jump over them. He's going to be bayoneted several times. He'll be stabbed in the face, yeah, stabbed in the side. Reading that he's about gonna him. Get, he's going to get the Medal of Honor, but you know what's going to happen? He's going to survive. Yep. And he's going to get brought back, and he's going to live to be 71 years old. You can't kill a New Englander, Mary. You can't. You it's can't. impossible, right? And so he's going to survive. Now, Robert E. Lee, at this point, the line is broken, okay? And he knows it is time, as you say, to vacate the dance floor, okay? <laughs> and as they say around the streets here, it's a GTFO out of Petersburg, okay? Yep. So he's going to drop a plan to take what's left of his army which is around 35,000, 40,000 guys, these weary war vets at this point. And they're going to escape Grant's army with the hopes of marching to North Carolina to meet up with Joseph E. Johnson's equally battered army that we talked about, the Department of North Carolina yep. in Southern Virginia. And they're going to try to cobble together what's left of these, these remnants of these armies in hopes to try to keep the South alive. But you hinted at it a little while ago. The biggest challenge Lee has is feeding these guys, yep. okay? So we talked before, we talked, and the horses and the mules, speaking of that. Yeah, not only, them, yeah, them, not, right? not only the the guys, but the horses too. Like Lee knew um, it was back in February 8th, 1865. He wrote the new Confederate Secretary of War, John C. Breckinridge. He said, you must not be surprised if calamity befalls us. You know, and this is, you know, when you have like, Fort Fisher has fallen, Wilmington and all that, right? These are major Confederate supply bases. And if they can't get their supplies, one of the reasons, like Lee knows he's got to leave at some point. 
But one of the reasons he can't is because due to, first of all, muddy roads, which we've seen many times in the Civil War, but also because he can't feed his horses the proper rations that they need per day to be able to haul the shit out of there, right? Um, and that's a that's a huge thing. Lee could like Lee needed to leave sooner, but he couldn't for that reason. No, he was he stuck. When he finally does go, though, he's going to march his army in four columns. They're all going to yep. pour out of those trenches in Petersburg. You know what? They're in pretty good spirits overall. Yep. They're sick of sitting around. They want to move. Lee himself, there's a story where he sat on Traveler, his horse, at a fork in the mm-hmm. road, and he encouraged his men as they pa- passed by, and he stayed until the very last guy went. You know, he stayed yep. there encouraging his guys because he knew that he, you know, that he had to do it. Now, he had hoped to have three of those four columns march along the Appomattox River to a place called Amelia Courthouse that we're going to talk a lot about here. And the fourth, uh, the fourth one is going to already be south of the river. They're just going to go straight west to Amelia. Now, the plan is once they get to Amelia, they're going to be fed, okay? There are 350,000 rations waiting for them in Amelia, okay? And so they're going to, go, going to get there. They're going to eat. They're going to have a big feast. And they're going to move to Danville, Virginia, and then cross that border into North Carolina to go meet up with Johnston. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot with this, and we talked a lot about retreats, we talked about Hood's retreat from North, from uh, Nashville. Yeah. We talked a lot about, obviously, Meade's retreat. And the one common thing is the terrain. And this is one that doesn't get talked about a lot either. The terrain is garbage, okay? Mm-hmm. They're going to march through heavy brush and narrow roads, Um but the benefit they had is they had a two-day head start on Grant. They had two days. So they knew they had to move fast. If they did, they can get to Amelia. They could eat and then get to North Carolina before Grant could catch them. Yep. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. Now, the whole thing with the Appomattox campaign for Lee is time. The clock was running and he knew it. Yeah, right? yeah it was. And, you know, the one thing, too, about this retreat is the soldiers – like that are going on it. Um, and as you said, morale was really, really high. Um, but you know, amongst his officers, one of them being John Brown Gordon, he said there was no hope for us, but retreat. So Gordon knows that the end is near for them. Um, and some soldiers refused to really believe things were bad. Um, and one of them said HC wall a North Carolina soldier said it was not until the March had taken direct, had taken direction to and through the half deserted streets and noble women were observed weeping as in the agony of despair that the realization came forcibly to mind that the once lovely lovely city was being abandoned to the ruthless invader so they're realizing like holy shit um shit just got real um and the confederates before they leave petersburg they set fire to it because that's what you do if you can't take you know your supplies with you you're going to burn them so your your enemy can't get them so the first Building That's what I do when I move. Yep. Great idea. <laughs> the first building's torch by the Confederates were the tobacco warehouses. Um, but there's one um, there's one story that I wanted to tell, and that is to do with John Brown Gordon. Um, and he says, as the, his troops are the last to leave Petersburg, they're bringing up the rear of the Confederate army, and they have to protect supply trains. But Gordon said the breaking of Lee's power had shattered the last hope of Southern independence. But he also, um, part of his personal story is that he has to leave his wife behind. His wife has been with him through the entire civil war. And he says, I had left behind me in the city of gloom, the wife who had followed me during the entire war. She was ill. But as I rode away from Petersburg during the dismal hours of that night, 
I found comfort in the hope that some chivalric soldier of the Union Army would learn of her presence and guard her home against all intruders. My confidence in American manhood was not misplaced. And I did kind of wonder when I read that quote, uh, Gordon was a Mason. Am I right <laughs> in that? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there was something to that and if he left Mason's her. Mason's don't, don't, they don't. <laughs> God. But I actually wondered if he left her with something that would say to, to help protect her, right? That he was, he was very concerned about her. Um, mm-hmm. But this is, you know, one of the, the, like kind of the human side of things that's happening to these guys too. Um, so as I said, Gordon's bringing up the rear and he remarks that protecting it is impossible because Grant with characteristic vigor is pressing the pursuit. Um, and it soon became a continuous and final battle, um, fighting all day, marching all night with exhaustion and hunger, claiming their victims at every mile of the march. Um, with charge of inter- infantry in rear and cavalry on the flanks, it seemed the war god had turned loose all the furies in revel and havoc. So this is the retreat. It is, mm-hmm. and these men, the Confederates, are so tired. Um, and it gets, it gets worse and worse. Yeah. You know, they start that march. They leave Petersburg with guess how many days rations? One day's rations. Yep. That's all they leave with. Yep. That's all they got. Because you're thinking they're going to get to Amelia and they're going to load up now. As you just talked about, Grant is going to send Phil Sheridan's cavalry to chase Lee's retreating mm-hmm. army, followed by his infantry. I mentioned before, they have a two-day, they about a 48-hour yeah. lead. Now, Sheridan is going to be nipping at Lee's heels, and eventually is going to meet up with his rear guard on April 3rd in a place called Namazine Church. Now, this is cavalry going up against infantry, so it's, it's in, in cavalry, too. The infantry is not there yet, but the cavalry is. So here... You're going to end up with a thousand federal cavalry led by George Custer, mainly the brigade of a guy named William Wells, and he's going to collide with Fitzhugh Lee's 700 guys. Now Lee is ultimately going to be able to hold back Custer and drive them back, right? Um, but after the battle, Sheridan is going to be operating independently, commanding that army of the Shenandoah, reporting yeah. to Grant, and he will arrive at Namazine and, and he's going to meet with Custer to try to formulate a plan to cut off Lee's retreat. Now, most of Lee's army is still way ahead. They're way forward ahead with that two-day uh, two head start. The Federal Cavalry is able to catch up with that rear guard, but again, the Cavalry is an infantry, and there's only so much they can really do. Lee's army had the lead, but again, time was ticking away, and that whole escape plan, like we mentioned, was based on keeping pace from Grant who was moving really fast to keep up with them. Oh, he's going so quickly. And, you know, like Grant and Meade had met before all this took place. And, you know, they're kind of debating what to do next. Um, Meade believed that um, just from what a prisoner had told them that Lee was going to like go back only a short distance and would stand in a prearranged defensive position. And Grant is like, no, he's not going to do that. Um, so Grant is convinced that Lee is going to retreat along the Danville road. And me just finally agrees with him that the army is going to be organized to pursue. And that's exactly um, what happens. Well, those three columns North of Appomattox, they, and this is, this is where things kind of go wrong, right? Those three arm, those three columns North of the Appomattox had to cross three bridges and this is where the first of the issues of time is going to catch up with yep. them. The, there'll be problems. The Bevel Bridge was one of the bridges was completely washed out. They couldn't use it. The second was called the, called the Ganito Bridge, and that couldn't be forded. You know why? 
because the supplies they ordered didn't arrive. And somewhere in 1862, Ambrose Burnside is laughing in a full Fredericksburg at this point, okay? Because that same <laughs> thing happens. He's like, ha, 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 ha. I know that feeling. <laughs> ha, fuckers, so, look at you now. <laughs> so, so what happened was it caused delays because now all three of those columns have to cross in the same area. Yep. And now, now the time is ticking. So April 4th, 7 o'clock in the morning, they've been marching all night long. And Lee and his men will cross the Appomattox. And they're still, you know, driven by those hopes of food waiting for them at Amelia Station. Now, they're tired. They're hungry. The band was probably playing Dave, Dave Matthews songs. So you know Ooh. they're miserable. That's how or bad Or Justin Bieber. Oh, probably, you, probably, you probably like that. They probably dance on that probably, you know. Oh, God, no. I've seen you dance. Trust me. No, no one's winning <laughs> that situation. But, but, the, but the, army, the army is approaching Amelia Courthouse. They're getting close. So what Lee's going to do, he's going to ride traveler. He's going to, he's going to yep. jump ahead is what he's going to do. He's going to run all the way ahead and he's going to get to the train station and check on the trains that are waiting for his arrival. Lee's going to get to the railroad station and he saw the, all the cars lined up and they opened them up and what he saw stunned him. Okay. One of the officers said Lee displayed, and I quote, intense agony and was shaken to the core when they opened these, when they opened the trains, they contained 200 crates of ammo, 100 caissons, and 160 boxes of artillery harnesses. Guess what it didn't contain? Food. No food, okay? <laughs> a, a, a clerical error, some sort of uh, error along the way delivered ammo to MLE Courthouse instead of food. Now, this was, a, they were expecting 350,000 rations, and all the guys were looking forward to it. Lee rides ahead and opens it and goes, shit, okay? And now, did that guy get a promotion? The clerical error. I bet. Did. I bet he, he did. Probably. I bet he got a promotion. He did. But you have to imagine <laughs> what he's thinking at this point. His tired, and hungry army is approaching, expecting to be fed. Okay, and not just them, but the animals, right? Mm -hmm. And and there's none. So Lee has to tell his men when they get there. Okay, we need to halt the march, and we have to go forage for yourselves. Do what you can do. He wrote an appeal to the citizens of Emily, Amelia uh, for food to try to see what can be done. So now it's the morning of April 5th. So now he's sitting around there. He's stuck. And his men and Amelia are waiting for the food. The citizens, they, they have no food. They got nothing. There's nothing. So there's nothing they can forage. No one has any food. Um, and now knowing his men, this grim reality, I guess, that his men are completely starving, he has no choice that he has to keep moving because Grant is right coming up at Savannah now. Yep. So he has to move. Grant's getting closer and that clock is ticking faster and faster. So you can only imagine what's going through these guys' minds. Oh, it it must be just, oh, like, I can't imagine what it, like, and they're just like Grant, like, like Gordon said, Grant is just relentless in this pursuit. He's constantly at them, nipping at their heels. There's battles every single day. And, you know, Gordon does remark in his memoirs, like, like we heart, like he hardly slept. So that means Lee probably hardly slept during this, this pursuit, you know, that leads right into, um, you know, April the 9th. Um, but there is one story that I wanted to tell that happens around this time. Um, mm -hmm. And it's one that I'm going to start, but I will finish in the next episode. So um, Gordon captured two supposedly Confederate officers, um, but it was discovered that they were Union soldiers impersonating Confederate officers, and it took them forever to find out. And finally, someone on Gordon's staff was like, well, take their boots off. So 
they took the boots off the one guy and found he had an order from General Grant to General Ord. And Gordon just looks at them and says, well, you know your fate. Under the laws of war, you have forfeited your lives by wearing this uniform, and I shall have you shot at sunrise tomorrow. And the one, sold, one of the soldiers just looks at him and says, you have the right to have a shot, but the war can't last much longer, and it would do you no good to have us killed. Um, and Gordon doesn't say this at the time, but he writes in his memoirs, I had no thought of having them executed, but I did not tell them so. And we will pick that story back up in the next episode. Ooh, cannot wait. Cannot wait. <laughs> so, you probably know what happens to them. But. No, I, I know what happens to them. But, you know, but so Lee finds out there's no food at the Amelia Courthouse. So he, he knows he has to keep moving. So on April 5th now, the men are going to wake up. They find out that, that there's no food. And they're going to be told they have to do a forced march to, a, to all the way to Danville, which is 100 miles away. It's four-day march now, okay? And, and where they're told, there's half a million rations waiting for them. So they're probably going, okay. Oh, BS. But, okay, so so that's <laughs> so you're already hungry. Now you're 100 miles, four days, 25 miles a day. Notice the math, Mary. Okay, that's a long yes. time to go. I've come a long way with my math skills, but you know what? I would be, I would have heard that, and I would be noping the fuck out of there and deserting and risking execution because nope, no way. Uh, don't question. But around this time, Lee is going to find out. He's going to hear that there might be food in the town of Burkeville, which is just 18 miles away. And Lee is going to wire ahead and he's going to say, basically, hey, is it true you got food? Um, if they, if, you know, if they do have food, instead of four-day march, we're talking one day. Okay? The so DQs much, must much have been open for business. It, it had to have been, right? But, um, but Grant was close and Lee couldn't wait for the response. He's like, all right, everybody get in the car. We're going to go check it out anyway. We have to go. So they're all going to start marching um, towards Burkeville. And with the hopes that food's going to be there. So around a, a boot, 1 p.m., okay, <laughs> on April 5th, okay, see that. Lee is going to learn that he's he, he's on his way to Burkeville. He has to go through a town called Jetersville, okay? And waiting in Jetersville, and this is right on the path to Burkeville, is Sheridan and his Federal Cavalry, which is entrenched, waiting for Lee, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, Lee's path to Burkeville is completely blocked now, so he needs a new plan. Now, as the rebels do get near Jetersville, Lee, uh, Lee himself is going to ride the line, and he's going to see Sheridan's entrenchments. And he did think about attacking, okay? But he realized his men are too hungry and too tired, and there's no way. There's no way they can do it. So he has to tell his guys, who are miserable already, that... It's impossible to go to Burkeville, so now we're going to turn west and we're going to go 60 miles to Lynchburg instead. Okay, now this is this is ridiculous, right? Now Lee was desperate and running out of time when Lee gave the order they had they were not going to Burkeville and now instead going all the way to Lynchburg. He said it was the cruelest marching order they ever got in their lives. That's how bad this was because he knew the terrain, he knew how long it was going to take. He knew they were going to be hit every step along the way, and he knew there was no hope whatsoever because the landscape was terrible. The way they had to walk, it was full of swamps. There was dense woods, totally filled Probably with clowns. clowns. Right? And absolutely there were. The roads <laughs> were, complete, were completely impassable, right? Now, his men were at the point they were so hungry, they were starting to become delirious and hallucinating. That's how hungry you'd get, right? Now, as they marched, they were eating leaves off the trees. They were eating bark off the trees, which oh. I will take over. I will take over broccoli any day. But regardless, that's how it was. Don't knock it till you try it, especially with a bit of cheese. 
you know my you know my opinion on broccoli. I do. But they but they were eating they that's what they were left to try to eat with. Now, despite the hunger, the thing that's interesting about this though is you know you read these stories. They were hungry and they were miserable, but they still had that spirit. They yeah, hadn't given up. They so did. Yeah. Back- yeah. Um, I was going to say, um, Gordon talks about that a lot in his memoirs, that just, just the fighting spirit that these men still had at this point in the war, you know, and you think it's like, my God, you're eating leaves, but you're still like, yeah, let's follow him. Well, I mean, if you think back to Five Forks, right, that, that took, we didn't really talk about that on this one, but we did a whole episode of Five Forks yeah. on April 1st uh, of 1865. If you remember, a thousand Rebs surrendered, okay? Only 100 took the oath of allegiance to the U.S. Yep. So that so that's 90% said screw. That's yep. how much spirit these guys still had, yep. right? Now, these men, you know, they, they did have stragglers and, you know, uh, and a lot of the men tossed their rifles as they were walking because they were just too heavy to carry. They were just yep. so hungry. So you get to April 6th now, the ribs are marching in what they call a gloomy silence. That's how it was called. Is hunger fatigue is really, really setting in now. The train is full of undulations, right? Mm. And, and you got to think about there, every incline Every hill must have felt like heartbreak hill at the Boston Marathon yeah. at this point, right? Just it just your legs had given out, you're atrophy and you're just tired. Now Lee himself has started to show effects of his hunger as well. I mean, don't forget he's dealing with heart issues and he's an old he's an old dude, Mary, right? Yeah. Observers said that his eyes were sunken. He was hazard looking, or, or as what you call Saturday morning, but he remained calm the whole time in the face of yeah. all this stuff. So he's physically, he's feeling it, but emotionally and mentally, he's, he's still sharp. Yeah. And, and despite the lack of food and Grant on his heels, he still feels pretty good about getting North Carolina and going to hook up with Johnston. Well, I think it, you know, if you recall our episodes that we did about Davis and his escape, you know, there's still this kind of like, there's this propaganda going on that they can still do this. You know, Davis is going around. He's, well, while well, Lee is doing this, you know, kind of this, this kind of march to, to keep away from Grant and to get to Johnson, you know, Davis is kind of doing his farewell tour. Well, will be his farewell tour, you know, in the, in the Confederate States. And he's stopping and making all these speeches that are like, don't worry, this is fine. He's like that dog that is sitting at the coffee, drinking the coffee. This is fine. Um, you know, and, and, and Lee's kind of, kind of doing the same thing with this. And, and you read about that in various accounts, you know, including Gordon's where he's always like, Lee was there, always in charge, always trying to lead the men. You know, yeah, well, he was, and he's still looking for food. So right around now, while they're on their march, he's going to find out again another rumor that there are eighty thousand rations now that are found in the town of Farmville, which mm-hmm. is just twenty miles away. And recently, Mary, I found out Farmville was not just a video game; it's a real town. Okay, <laughs> that's where Lee was going. Right. Farmville. I remember so, Farmville. I never oh, played. Yeah, I never. I never Farm, played Farmville, but I remember yeah. my friends playing Farmville. But it was. <laughs> but there. But here's the thing about it, though. This is food that was delivered from Danville. There were rumors of warm bread, ham, French onion soup of all things. Oh That's my what god! I would have taken off running. I would have been right. like, yes. And this is this is supposed to be food that was supplied from Danville. Now, it must have felt like a gift from God when they heard this news. It's ironic that you know who was the, you know who was born in Farmville, Virginia, of all people? Oh. Was it Joseph Johnson? 
The guy right. who they're going to meet, yep. they're going to go to his hometown to get food. They're going to probably knock on his parents' door, ding dong, and get some food, right? <laughs> and visit the DQ. Now, I know what you're thinking, Mary. I know what you're thinking, okay? Is what's Grant doing at this time, okay? Now, his army is also on the move, yep. and they are moving in an amazing 35 miles per day clip. That's how fast they're going. Well, that's what getting fresh bread every day. I'm not saying they're getting it this time, but that's what they probably had enough rations to keep them going. I mean, if you have food, you can you can keep going. And these guys are probably like, we're at the end of this shit storm. Let's get it done. You know, and I mean, Grant is like, Grant knows how to inspire his men, right? Well, he he does, but he knows how to inspire his guys, but he knows Lee can too. He knows Lee is on this hellish march, and but he but Grant is still afraid about Lee's capable of Lee. Grant quotes, he says, Lee isn't a bad fix, but if I were in his place, I think I could get away with part of the army. I suppose Lee will. Now, we're going to talk about this here in a little while towards the end of this. But him splitting up his army was Grant and Lincoln's worst nightmare. And we'll talk about that specifically towards the very end. Yeah. But Grant is also re- reiterating to Sheridan uh, and, and George Meade, okay, you mentioned him, that the plan now is not just to follow Lee. They got to get ahead of him and they got to cut him off. Yep. They got to stop him, right? Exactly. So on April 6th again, while the Rebs are heading to Farmville, okay. Grant is going to order Sheridan to move northwest and setting up – it's going to be setting up a move here that is going to put him ahead of Lee and set up that pincer motion, that movement against Lee's army. So Sheridan is going to be with the 6th Corps, okay? And they're going to move ahead while the Rebs are moving along a stream called Sailor's Creek, yeah. okay? At this moment, this part of Lee's army, uh, which is basically Richard Yule um, and John B. Gordon, they're going to get cut off from the rest of Lee's army at this point, Okay. And, and the rest of the army in Northern Virginia. And when they realize uh, that, and they learn that the federal troops are right on them at this point, they're going to fall back to a position on the high grounds near a place called Hillsman's House. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be the Battle of Sailor's Creek. And it's actually going to be three different battles. And it's going to be, it's described as being a very bloody engagement, possibly one of the bloodier ones of the Civil War. And I mean, this is what happens when you're near the end of the war. You're going to fight hard, you know, and it's going to be brutal. So the three different battles are the Battle of Lockett's Farm, which is General Humphreys versus Gordon. Um, and what Gordon describes as being absolutely brutal. He said, a column struck my command while we were endeavoring to push the ponderous wagon trains through the bog, out of which the starved teams were unable to drag them. Many of these wagons loaded with ammunition mired so deep in the mud that they had to be abandoned. And this again gets back to the train that they're going over. So, you know, they don't have food, but they had that ammo and they have to abandon it. And they're not taking that with them. And this is, again... It's kind of like the Fort Stedman thing. We didn't need to lose any more. They're not losing men this time, but they're losing ammo. And then you had the Battle of Marshall's Crossroads, which is uh, Crook and Merritt on the Union versus Richard Anderson. And you have the Battle of Hillsman House, which is Wright for the Union and Ewell for the Confederate. And just look at the overall numbers. The Confederates don't really have a chance here, okay? Sheridan and Wright had 26,000 guys here, okay? And the Rebs had about 18,000, give or take. And the Rebs knew they had to make a stand, right, despite that hunger, despite that fatigue. The 6th Corps under Horatio Wright is going to move in a position, just like you were saying, 
and they're going to move into battle lines, okay? And this is going to focus on the Hillsman House area, but they're going to advance and attack up that slope towards that house. Now, the Rebs are also going to be hit by Custer's Cavalry, who's going to notice two huge gaps on that Rebel line. Now, the Union is going to hit them with vicious artillery barrage as well. One Rebel soldier said, I had seldom seen fire more accurate and not one that has been more deadly. So they're getting hit with all, all three aspects yeah. here, right? The Rebs are going to begin to falter. And like I said, they didn't have much of a chance here anyway. And Sheridan sees them begin to fail a little bit and yells to his men, go through them, they're demoralized as hell. That's what he says, right? <laughs> Pictures, high-pitched voices, three feet tall. Go that's through yells, it. Okay? Okay? But the Rebs actually were not demoralized, okay? And when the feds hit that rebel line on that hillside, it resulted in some of the most vicious hand-to-hand combat. You're talking to guys fighting with fists. They were scratching with fingernails. They were biting at ears and throats. I don't know if Mike Tyson was involved, but oh, that's probably you know, what he would have done. I mean, they're, they're literally, there's a one story of a Union soldier who got bayoneted through the stomach so hard it pinned him to the ground. And before he died, he was able to shoot the guy who stabbed him. There was oh. stories of friendly, friendly fire where there was so much smoke and fog that um, guys are taking their bayonets and taking their muskets and cracking skulls of their own soldiers because they didn't know who the hell it was. That That's how bad this was, right? The feds kept coming, and the numbers, like most of these battles, do eventually tell the story, and the Confederates do get overwhelmed with this, right? Now, yep. while this is all going on, Lee is going to be on a ridge riding on his horse, and he's going to be astonished at what he sees, yep. okay? He's going to turn to General William Mahone, we talked about him many times, and he's going to say, my God, has the army been dissolved? And Mahone's going to turn to him and say, no, General, here are troops ready to do their duty, his guys, and ready to fight. You know what Lee does? Lee is going to be cool and calm, yeah. okay? But allegedly, at this point, he loses his shit. He's friggin' had it. He's done, okay? I mean, he, he's just, so he's going to grab the battle flag. And he's going to rally his guys. Now, the flag, this flag has caused the deaths of five guys at this point being shot down. So Lee doing this must have um, really scared the hell out of his guys. Mahone is going to sit there with his jaw dropped okay, yeah. in stunned silence as Lee is going to ride by him to, to wave in his flag. Now, at one point, I don't know, this sounds like Douglas Soltall Freeman crap, but I guess at one point, the wind blows and catches the flag and wraps the flag around Lee like he's a superhero and everybody gets all teary. <laughs> and then someone, someone, someone yells, who's the man who won't follow Uncle Robert? And they'll go, yeah. And they all start going together towards the slaughter, all these Mahone's guys, right? So who knows? Yeah. But that's that's the story. Well, now, Gordon writes about that. He said General Lee was riding everywhere and watching everything, encouraging his brave men by his calm and cheerful bearing. And he also mentions he was often exposed to great danger from shells and bullets. Oh, there's no doubt he was he was at the front. There's no question. But at the end of the day, the Rebs are going to get their asses handed to him at Sailor's Creek. Right? Big time. And a lot of them captured, too, including Ewell. Ewell's probably the most known Confederate that is going to get captured at this battle. And I have a funny quote here from, from Gordon. He said, Rushing through the broad gap between Ewell and myself, the heavy federal force soon surrounded the command of that brave old one-legged hero and forced him to surrender. One-legged hero. Ewell? I can't get that out of my mind now. Oh, God. One-legged hero. I know. I know one-armed hero. One-armed hero. One-legged hero. God. Anyway, okay. <laughs> no. But, no, but he all is. 
but no. Richard Ewell, this is a guy who lost a leg at Groveton. Yeah. You know, he helped he helped fill that void lost by Stonewall Jackson when he had killed in Chancellorsville. Yep. And he's going to be captured along with a lot of guys, and also Joseph Kershaw gets captured here. Now, it's interesting is is when Ewell's captured, he's sur- he he's surrendered. Okay. He reportedly he drops his knees and starts crying. And he says, Sounds Our like cost is uh, our cause is our cause is lost. And then he says, he says to somebody else, Lee needs to surrender before more lives are lost. Okay. But for, for Yule, he'll be shipping up to Boston where he'll spend the next four <laughs> months of his life as a prisoner of Fort Warren in Boston Harbor. That's where he's going to go right up the street here. That's nice. where he's going to go. And this Sailor's Creek disaster will be known in the Confederacy later as Black Thursday. Yeah. That's what it's going to be called. Right. So again, to what you said at the very beginning of this, you don't have a lot of guys anyway. And now you just lost 8,000 more. Yeah. And you lost a, a, a couple of big generals too as well. Yeah, you lose like Ewell Kershaw. Uh, the son of General Lee, Custis Lee, is captured here too. You have Seth B. Barton, Sims, Meriwether Lewis Clark. I just wrote that down because it was a cool name. Um, and M- Montgomery D. Course, among a few others that were, were captured as well. Like this is, like Sailor's Creek is probably the worst battle for the Confederates in the Appomattox campaign. And it is just, you know, uh, it's absolutely horrific fighting, but what it does for the union is it makes Sheridan see something to the point where he writes a letter to Grant, um, well, telegram and Lincoln, uh, gets word of what Sheridan has said. And, um, the one thing that Sheridan said, um, that he said, if the thing is pressed, I think Lee will surrender. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sheridan says to Grant. And Lincoln, of course, famously responds. Yep. Let the thing be pressed. Let the thing be pressed, right? So that's one of those famous things. This comes out of Sailor's Creek. Now, the next day is April 7th, okay? And Lee is going to keep moving. Um, and he's, he's going to make it to Farmville uh, in what's left of his army, where those rations actually are there, Okay. And they're going to be starting to be passed out to his guys, who was gleeful and thankful men. Now, Farmville is just north of the Appomattox River, okay? And Lee felt where he was that he could breathe and he could catch his breath a little bit from Grant's guys because the river was swollen. And he had thought that all the bridges that crossed it were burned by the Confederates. They thought they were, they thought they could just chill. They had some time mm-hmm. to relax, okay? Now, while, while Lee's sitting at this headquarters there, He's going to meet with Secretary of War John Breckinridge. He's going to show up from Richmond. He's going to ride by. He's on his way to Danville chasing Deborah Davis and his little thing, right? <laughs> and after 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 the meeting, Breckinridge is going to wire Davis, who was, like I said, he's on his own little retreat. And he's going to say to Davis, the situation is not favorable. So it's like, not he's good. like, these guys, these guys are freaking screwed, right? But all of a sudden, news comes to Lee that is a complete disaster. And he has that complete old man pucker effect it's... situation, okay? Despite what he thought, okay, not all the bridges over the river were destroyed. And he was vulnerable. He didn't realize it. There was a bridge called the High Bridge, which is still passable when they when they realized and when they realized that the feds were already basically there. You know why it was called the High Bridge, Mary? Why was it called the High Bridge, Darren? Because it was high. It's 125 feet high. Wow, that's taller than sometimes, me. Sometimes, sometimes the easiest answer is the answer. Okay, but the <laughs> Appomattox, the Appomattox River, no longer separated Lee from Grant because Grant Lee thought he had some time. Now he realizes he doesn't. So you know what he does? 
he loses his mind. Now he now leaves him. That, that's it. I'm pissed, yeah. right? So he's he's pissed. He's how the F do we lose to Buffalo Mad? That's how angry <laughs> he is, okay? And he's going to order his men out of Farmville, ASAFP, to get across the Potomac south as fast as they can. Yeah. Now, it's sad because not all the men had got their rations yet. No. They were in line for food, and they had to watch in misery as the wagons started to roll away, and they didn't get any food, and they that were starving. That would suck if you were waiting for your blizzard at the DQ, and it well, was just like, they're like, no, we can't do it, sorry. And you do that to people with a gleam in your eye. But Grant, but Grant, you know, just a couple hours later, Grant's going to find himself in Farmville in the early afternoon, and he knew Lee was in a tough spot at this point. He does. And he decides maybe, well, maybe it's time to reach out to this rebel commander and see if he wants to call it quits, okay? And this is when this is going to begin these these letters back and forth. Now, we can read the letters, okay? And they're they're great letters. But what we decided to do is write them as if they were in today's time and they were text messages. So what we're going to do is put this in modern times, okay? So anyway, here's how Grant – how I'm going to be Grant. Here's how Grant's first letter to Lee would have probably sounded, okay? You ready? Yep. Hey, by now you realize the jig is up and you are screwed. I know where you are, so don't make me come down there and mess you up. How about you give it the old quit and we call it a day before more people get hurt? Okay, that's what he's going to say. Now, many of the Confederates, okay, at this point um, are going to share Grant's thoughts, okay? Yeah. Including a guy named General Henry Wise, the former governor of Virginia. Yeah. Who's going to write Lee to his face? And this is a real letter. This is a real one. Okay, he's going to say this to Lee's face. Okay, and someone's going to write it down. This army is hopelessly whipped and is fast becoming demoralized. These men have already endured more than I believe flesh and blood can stand. And I say to you, sir, emphatically, that to prolong the struggle is murder. And that blood of every man who was killed from this point on is on your head, General Lee. So he says to him, he says to Lee, okay. Wow. And, and so I don't know if he said, it's all my fault. I beg of you, pray to me now. It's all my, my fault. fault. But clearly, Lee did not get a harum from that guy. Whatever the <laughs> heck it was, okay? But anyways, Lee, Lee is going to get a letter. It's going to get that letter from Grant, the one yeah. I paraphrase, okay? And he's going to show it to James Longstreet for his thoughts. Now, Longstreet is going to hem and haw. As and, Longstreet and does. It does. But he felt the time wasn't right to surrender. He famously says, not yet, right? And Lee responded back, but the letter must be returned, sir. So he is going to sit and craft another interesting response, which Mary is going to read right now. He does. Received your text. Seriously? You think the Army of Northern Virginia is done? Nope. Don't share that sentiment. However, I 100% agree that there needs to be no ass kickings. But before considering anything, just out of idle curiosity, because apparently I have nothing better to do, I'd like to know what terms you offer on condition of surrender. Again, this is not a binding agreement, Sam. I am not surrendering my damn army. Sincerely, Bob. <laughs> wow. Now, the, the, that letter, okay, if you could read through, through all that, was obviously probing for terms, right? Now, remember, you asked Grant, remember what his nickname was? Unconditional surrender. It was Sam. Yeah, it was unconditional yeah, surrender. Yeah, and Sam. Right? And Sam. And yeah. Sam. Okay. So Grant is, was, you know, um, 
So he knew the, his personal stakes, Leah's, in his yeah. personal future depended on what Grant's whims were, right? Yeah. Now, we didn't talk a lot about the River Queen, okay? But going back to the beginning, going back to that real quick, yeah. okay? An extra special turn back time situation. If I could turn okay. back well, time. Okay, 2.0, okay? They talked about the terms, and the terms were basically let these guys turn in their guns, let them go home. Yeah, that's and what Lincoln wanted. It. And the River Queen was this meeting that was uh, Lincoln, Grant, Sherman, and Admiral Porter. There's a famous painting of it. You can tell that Sherman is completely dominating the conversation, which is typical Sherman. Um, there's a rainbow in the background out of the window of the boat, which it's like, well, that's random. But apparently Porter is the only one to record what happened in the conversation. But this is the conversation with which Grant took away what he knew to be the terms and also what Sherman knew, knew to be, be the terms. Now, we did an episode last year about Bentonville and the surrender there, and we, also, we all know what happened with Sherman there. But, um, you know, the one thing Lincoln didn't want was to, the generals to get in kind of political shit. You know, that was the one thing that he said. He's like, don't do political shit. Well, he, he, he's not sure what's going on. But, but you know, at that point, Lee is still feisty. And he's going to tell Longstreet, I will strike that man a blow in the morning. And when another officer came up to Lee and asked if they were thinking, are we thinking of surrendering? He says, surrender? I trust it has not come to that, right? So April 8th, Grant's men, okay, you know, they're marching, they're marching along and passing the bodies of dead revs, okay, on the yeah. side of the road, as well as these sullen deserters who have just about given up. They've just about had it, okay? And Grant, upon receiving Lee's response, is going to craft a second letter or a second text in this case, okay? And by all accounts, he agonized over it. Some say it took Grant six hours to write this letter. Wow. Six hours, okay? So in today's lingo, he's going to respond back. Uh, look, Robert, I just want this shit to end, okay? And I just all I want is for you guys to quit and not fight us again. I'll tell you what, if you don't want to be embarrassed, just send someone to surrender in your place. I don't give an F. Send Longstreet. I know you already hate him, LOL. So that's what he's going to send back to Grant, okay? And so Grant's real fear, okay? Now, again, we talked about this before. Grant's real fear, and we're going to talk about this more next yeah. time is Lee splitting up the army and fighting that guerrilla war that will go on forever, right? Now, this is the tactic used in the American Revolution, what we saw in the Civil War with guys like John Mosby, uh, Bloody Bill Anderson, uh, John Hunt Morgan. So it was not unusual to do this, right? Lee's going to receive Grant's second message, okay, the one that I just read. And he wasn't having it, okay? And he wants, he wants to fa have a face-to-face -face meeting with him with that Union commander, to learn more of what his intentions were. So he's going to write one more letter to Grant to talk about those intentions. Yep. Okay, Sam. I know we are in two different sides here, somewhat two different countries, or at least that's what I'm trying for. But I'm pretty sure I sent that last text to you in English, which we both speak, and nowhere did I say I would like to surrender my army. I'm not on Facebook, but I don't, as the kids say, do vague booking, though I hear Longstreet does, and Jackson was bad for it, especially over the whole Garnet fiasco. I swear I have an army of drama queens. Let me say it again. I was just curious as to what your terms would be. In all honesty, I think things are cool with my army right now, and I really don't think we need to surrender. But you mentioned peace. I just wanted to know if your proposals would lead to that. Just saying. 
This is an all around about way of saying I ain't surrendering to you, but I would be willing to meet to discuss the possibility of peace. There is a difference. So 10 a.m. tomorrow on the old stage road to Richmond between the two armies. What do you think? LMK, that means let me know, Sam. Sincerely, Bob. <laughs> so, so you can, you can see how, how that was. Now, we're going to, Grant is, he's going to get these letters and he's, he, he's, he's like, like what, what the, the fuck? <laughs> well, the thing about Grant, okay, is, you know, Lee sends that letter back to Grant, okay, and Grant, by all reports, is suffering from a intense migraine. migraine. Yeah. Like it was a hangover. We don't know. We have to ask Charles Dana. But I guess by all kinds of I, I was wondering, right? too, if it was a, like, because when it, like, severe, you know, I was like, I was questioning that when I read that uh, in the research. I'm like, and I've always wondered that about, like, a migraine or hangover. But I, I will go with migraine here because nah, Grant this was a, this one was a migraine. This was yeah, a migraine, it was a right? migraine. Trust me, I, you can get migraines from stress. I get them all. But the he, time. he he had stress. His anxiety level was through the damn roof. Yeah. Reportedly, he was taking mustard plasters on his wrist, yep. and he took several hot foot baths. Okay, it was a treatment for migraines back that, then. Okay, yeah, but nothing eased this migraine. No. He's going to get Lee's letter. He's going to read Lee's response, which he thought was brash, admittedly. And he's going to read it aloud to his staff. And he's going to say, well, it looks as if General Lee still means to fight. Okay. And he knew, okay, as to that rebel commander, that he, that he still had one more card to play. Lee did. Okay. And before he's, that Lee's going to surrender that army. And I wonder what that card could be, Mary. And I tell you what, for the rest of the story, we'll pick it up next time. But we'll we leave it there about how this is going to end, okay? We will. But how it's going to end will be a fun story to talk about. So that's how we're going to drop it off, I think, yep. right at that point. We're going to leave with a little cliffhanger, Mary, yep. about how it's going to go. So we're going to leave we're going to leave the boys down there in Appomattox about how they're going to do. Lee is trying to formulate his game plan for the next morning of April 9th. Picture uh, Grant sitting there with his feet in the um, in the hot bath with mustard, with mustard plasters, plasters on, on there. his wrist, agonizing over what the fuck is going to happen next. With the hangover, it's probably a migraine. <laughs> realistically, we <laughs> tease Grant. We know it. We know it's a migraine. Anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna take a break. We're gonna stop it at that point. We're gonna leave it at there. So I think to summarize this point was this is. A lot of people talk about Appomattox. You talk about the courthouse. You talk about yep. his surrender. You talk about all this stuff. But I think a lot of people don't really appreciate the pure misery of this march from Petersburg that's going to culminate uh, no. in, in, in this. I can only imagine the, the your beaten army. You just saw your capital fall. Your president's running around trying to take off and hide, Okay. You know, you've got you've got Sarah Slater with the Confederate gold doing who the hell yeah. knows what. With She's it, going right? off to Canada with it to okay. gamble at our casinos, probably. Right. Probably, probably at that place in you know, Ontario there. Whatever it's called. Yeah, the uh, town I work in, Clinton. She's probably yeah. at the casino. <laughs> but you you you're running away. You just want to get the hell away for one last chance. You get to Amelia Courthouse and the food is gone. Yeah. And now everywhere you go is blocked. You think you finally get a chance to eat. Because someone doesn't get a Ford for the for the bridge, because someone doesn't burn the high bridge, now you're consistently on the run. And unlike previous Union commanders, you're not even not not just you know McClellan or, or Burnside. Every time Meade hits him, he keeps coming. So Lee has to deal with that fact that he's used to being hit and then falling back, and then they all cool off and they get hit again. 
he's coming and coming yep. and coming. Just a, an overland came, campaign that hammer and the nail keeps swinging. And Lee is going to get to a point where he's going to have a real decision he has to make on the early morning of April 9th. And he's going to give it one more shot. And we're going to talk about that next time. Yeah, we are. And I mean, if if anybody, you know, the one sort one of the sources I used for this was, was Gordon's memoirs. And I know Gordon has been accused of embellishing and, and whatever, but it's still, you know, it's a source for, for the retreat from, from Petersburg. And I mean, I think he, he's laying it out how it was. It was a shitty situation. I mean, he's leaving Petersburg and he's leaving his wife behind, you know? Um, and he's talking about how he and Lee and the other generals are like, they're going on like little to no sleep for this, you know, a lot of the campaign. Um, the men still have fight in them, but they're not getting the the food that they need. And he talks about just, you know, men dropping off out of starvation, out of exhaustion uh, because they they don't have the rations they need. Um, I think he tells the retreat a lot like it was. It was horrible. And he does say before the Battle of Sailor's Creek going into that, the Army of Northern Virginia was a skeleton of what it had been. Yeah. You know, and that just, like, Sailor's Creek really hit them hard. But then you go back to something like Stedman where they lose those 4,000 guys that you can't keep losing those men. And just like yep. you can't Man. keep losing them along the way. Um, but I mean, his his memoirs, that, that last part of his memoirs for this, like just the retreat, talk about how brutal it was. And this is a guy who was on, he, he was on the, uh, he was on the Gettysburg retreat. Yeah, no, he, he was. So again, this is this is out of all the retreats you talk about, this one's probably the worst of them all. I think and, so. And also, and, and also, there was points where it snowed on us. They had to yeah, walk through no, snow parts of Virginia. Yeah, the, I mean, the muddy and all that. But then you know you have the Union Army that is in constant pursuit of them, and you have to remember the the big factor here is the food. Uh, the men are able to get the nourishment. Now, granted, they're not going to be getting it as they're going, but they're able to take more rations with them because they have that supply, right? So they're able to feed their horses. They're able to feed their men. And these men right. are also going on like, we're almost at the end. And they're being led like by men, Grant, Meade. And I hate the guy, but I'm sorry. Sheridan probably inspired a lot of morale in his men too. Well, they did. I mean, he, you know, he's in charge of that army, the Shenandoah. Yeah. And although he's under Grant, he's still independent and he's still doing his thing. But I think well, this will be a good thing to talk about next time in and for our little conversation, the, the Civil War, for the most part, of the Army of Northern Virginia is going to end, and it's going to pick up right at Sumter, right afterwards again. That's how the timing goes. Yeah. But I think it's a good thing to talk about. So I know what's coming up next, but I'm going to ask you again, Fincheru, what's next for us? So next, we are talking Appomattox Part 2. Um, and then afterwards, we have to sit down and talk about what our episodes are. We will be having our roundtable in April. Uh not doing a Facebook live. If you, if y'all are listening to this, we're not doing a Facebook live on the weekend, but we will be doing one sometime again soon, which we will post about that. Um, and yeah, we will be hanging with y'all again soon. All right. So off we go. Some fun stuff coming down the pike for us. So we will uh, look forward to uh, the beginning of baseball season, Mary, which is pretty good. Yeah. Some, some of us have a team that actually has a shot others. Well, not so much, but it's okay. That's all part of the fun. That's part of being a fan, right? The great halt is apparently part of the history of my team now from 2016 world series. <laughs> That's too, it's too funny. All right. So off we go. So Mary, again, the pleasure we say this many, many times, of course, is always all yours. 
And we will look forward to some fun stuff coming for us down the pike when we do our next live, whenever that happens to be, whenever we figure this thing out. So off we go. Thanks, everybody. Listen, we appreciate it. Everyone have a great weekend. Everybody have a safe weekend. Hopefully the weather is warming up where you are. Hopefully your team loses, unless you are a fan of the Red Sox. And we will have some fun with everything else down the road. So good night, everybody. Have a great day. See you guys later. Peace out. Go Socks. Go Tribe.